You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skylar. Scott, you know, I just noticed you have uh, some lobsters on your shirt there. <laughs> Both I of do. us are wearing, uh, yeah, you know, we're looking weird, good today. weirder shirts than normal. We are. Like the, I feel like this is kind of like the in sort of things. I've got like a floral shirt on. Yeah. You've got the lobster shirt. Uh-huh, and it's like a half size too small, or I'm a half size too big. I don't know, uh, one of the two. Yeah. Of course, that one out <laughs> however you want, so. But yeah, my hair's done. Yeah. Yeah. Still got a better Great. beard. Great. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I need You're to trim it. I need to trim my beard, speaking of. So. Yeah. Do you, do you have a tool? Like, do you, like, actually with scissors? Or do you uh, have a shaver? Honestly, a it's at the point where a lot of times, yeah, I, mean, I use a, uh, you know, beard trimmer. And, uh, but mostly I just let my barber do it every time that I okay. go there. <laughs> so is that, at what stage yeah. in the beard growth? Yeah. Is it now no longer weird to ask a barber to yeah. cut it? Yeah. I, I think any stage is just fine. Like my stage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you ask your barber, hey, tighten it up a little bit. Yeah. He'll, Seems, uh, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll get the the uh, straight razor out, trim around your face. You know, nice. That kind of stuff. So. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. yeah Life lessons. Nice. But yeah, I used, to, I used to do, you know, beard oil and things like that more often. Uh, I have like a this brush that's like a horse or a, what is it? It's some sort of weird hair. I can't remember, but <laughs> it's like the bristles are horse hair. Are, I don't know what it is, but anyway, I was going to say horse hair, but I feel like that's weird. Yeah. I don't think it's yeah, horse it's, hair, yeah. but it's something like that. So anywho, I, I haven't done a lot to the old beard lately. And uh, it used to be long. Did you know you didn't meet me with it? My beard used to be like a good, I don't know, six inches, eight inches, maybe longer. Interesting. Something like that. It was like down to mid chest. Wow. So no, I didn't ever. Yeah. I I did not yep. see that yep. ever. So I've uh I've cleaned it up since moving to Utah. <laughs> Paul says be all things to all people. So can't be a scraggly <laughs> yeah. looking uh wild man <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Well, I, but I will drink <coughs> coffee. So there's yeah, that a, won't go. Good. We have limits. That's right. We have limits. We've got like I've got a actually bag of coffee that a friend got me at a conference on the table here. You're drinking some coffee over there. Looks I am. Like. I I needed it. We got I some. Did, I didn't we got get some my good things coming with the uh, with all the coffee around us here. So yeah, yeah. I still love J and J's, man. A lot of good books on the table. Mm-hmm. The Mormon Jesus. Yes. Yep. Yeah, statements of the LDS First oh. Presidency. Yeah. Yep. We've got a few books open up here. <laughs> this book anyway. looks like the best one on the table. It probably is. Yeah, in terms of being theologically accurate. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Not much competition there. Yeah. But yeah. He's pointing at uh, got a new book, Union with the Resurrected Christ, that I'll probably read from some today by G.K. Beale. Yes. Um, G.K. Beale, I think, is one of those guys that should be read a lot mm-hmm. out here in Utah. He's done extensive work on the temple. Yes. And uh, that honestly is like kind of a, a, a recurring theme for all of his writings. Is He sees the uh, the temple as being really one of the central themes in all of the scripture. And uh, 
of course, he would argue that, uh, as we would, that there's no need for physical earthly temples, but that the physical temple of Jerusalem was a shadow of the true temple, which was um, eschatological and and located Mm -hmm. in heaven. And the temple, of course, being the dwelling place of of God. And uh, anyways, how that all connects to Jesus being the presence of God in the world and his incarnation taking on flesh, tabernacling among us and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's really helpful to read his, his stuff out here because of the highlighting of the temple in uh, LDSism, you know? Absolutely. In fact, he was key for me because I, I associated temple theology only with that handful of scholars, most of them eccentric, almost all of them liberal. Yeah, or mystical, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, like like a Margaret Barker, and um, so yes, if you want to study Mormonism, you have to read G.K. Bill because I think he, at least in terms of also caring about the faith, mm-hmm. he's probably the best scholar alive today, at least in the English speaking world. Yeah, on the Old Testament temple theology. Yep, um, he uh, the Temple and the Church's Mission is literally one of the best books yeah. out there in terms of biblical theology. I yeah. think. And then there's a popular book that, you know, if you think, oh, that's a little too academic for the listeners. Um, first off, I think you can do it. I, I think people should try to read academic books, even if they don't sound fun. But there is a book called God Dwells Among Us, Expanding Eden to the End of the Earth. That's yeah. a little bit less academic. That's fantastic if somebody wants to try out G.K. Beale. Is that the Crossway one? You know what? Oh, is that Beale? Is that one Beale as well? Yes, G.K. Beale. Let me find out. Yeah, it's probably not. I'm thinking of a different one. So yeah. Anyway, I don't know the publisher. Read you some G.K. Beale. That's the uh, Mm -hmm. the moral of the story here. But yeah, this this new book is uh, Union with the Resurrected Christ, and uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it's brand new and it's amazing. So IVP on that other one yeah right on cool man any uh wonderful updates since last week none at all yeah (laughs) just cruising cruising along (laughs) same here so trying to get Uh, my life back in order after vacation yes it's it's rough oh it's so bad it's like yeah (laughs) you have to plan on it or i know it's like you do three times the work to be able to leave and then you get back and you're behind three times what you would have been it's like how did that happen right you know (laughs) anyway so here we are and uh we're talking about the resurrection today so it's a big one uh yeah looking forward to it so we are looking at the come follow me lds curriculum that is going to be taught in the meeting houses the wards all around the world from june 26th to july 2nd of 2023 And it is looking at, as you know, if you've been following along with us, the New Testament, and particularly the resurrection this week. we got Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and 21. So the events that are highlighted are both the resurrection and some of the post-resurrection events that are in at the end of these uh, various Gospels. So we are wrapping up our time in the Gospels because... uh, Last week. Yep, this will be the end of it, and then it'll be on to Acts... Uh, chapters one to five starting next week. So uh, yeah, the resurrection, which is uh, obviously a a highlight, a critically essential 
part of the uh, the redemptive historical narrative of what we see happening in the Bible. And uh, for uh, evangelical credo Christians, uh, we would say it's absolutely essential to get the doctrine of the resurrection right, uh, because the doctrine of the resurrection is intricately tied into the truth of the gospel. And so if you miss on that, then uh, you miss on on everything. So let me just start us off by reading a little bit here from First Corinthians, and I don't know, what do you think we should read? Three to eight? Yeah, let's let's do it. So um, this is this is what's often been referred to as uh, an early creed, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that's what you see happening here. Paul is reciting a, a creed that the church would have held to. So uh, listen to what he says here, 1 Corinthians 15, 38. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. And then Paul goes on to talk about being the least of the apostles, persecutor of the church of God, uh, so on and so forth. But clearly, the truth of the gospel is um, grounded in the resurrection of Christ. And uh, it's not just the cross, it's the resurrection. And it, it, furthermore, it's not just the resurrection, it's the ascension. Yes. And one thing that we had noted is that the LDS Church doesn't talk about the ascension at all. Uh, it's not It's not in the, the passages that you would expect it to be, which would be either the end of the Gospels or the beginning of Acts, which we'll be looking at next week. So, um, yeah, which is uh, just... Shame. We'll get into some of why that's such an important doctrine even today, uh, because you, if you have the ascension, or if you have the resurrection without the ascension, then uh, the resurrection is uh, essentially uh, an incomplete story. You know, it's it's uh, Jesus, you know, trapped in a physical body on the earth, and uh, the the ascension is where his glorification occurs, which means that uh, apart from that, we would have no hope. Of glorification ourselves, and so, anyways, we'll we'll get into some of that here in a little bit. But for now, let me just shoot us through the uh, curriculum itself. We have four different subsections, and then the additional resources, which is pretty typical and what we've seen as we've been walking through this. The first subsection generally covers all four chapters or all four books, all four gospels, and the last chapters of those gospels, or more particularly, I guess I should say, the resurrection account. In each one of those gospels. So Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. And the subtitle on that section is Because Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. And, uh, you know, we would affirm that at least on the surface, right? And so we will get into some of the differences there here in just a little bit. They do reference a uh, Bible dictionary article on the resurrection, which is on the LDS website. And uh, that article will probably be interacting with some as well when we get back to this this section, just to try to decipher what their particular belief on the resurrection is and uh, hopefully be able to make some good and relevant points there. 
And then the second subsection is from Luke 24, 13 to 35, which is the uh, the road to Emmaus passage, which we've actually talked about on the podcast already because of mm-hmm. how that particular passage speaks to our way of understanding um, the uh, the doctrine of illumination, how we come to understand what is true in the scriptures, and also the centrality of the Word of God mm-hmm. and how Jesus references the uh, the Word when he's teaching his disciples and how all of it is about him, but. Uh, in any case, the uh, subtitle that we get in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum is we can invite the Savior to abide with us. And then there's uh, there's some real gems in there toward the end that we'll probably cover. Um, his, let me just read this. To help class members see connections between their experiences and the experience of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, draw a road on the board. And invite class members to write details from the account in Luke 24, 13 to 35 on one side of the road. Then on the other side of the road, they could write parallels they see to their own experiences as followers of Jesus Christ. For example, they could write, quote, their eyes were behold, their eyes were holden, end quote, Luke 24, 16. On the other side of the road, and we sometimes don't recognize the Lord's influence in our lives. How can we invite the Savior to abide with us? Which you know we were talking about before. Like there's a there's a contradiction mm-hmm. at least in my mind. Yeah. Just in the last. Okay, so so on one side you're going to write we sometimes don't recognize the Lord's influence in our lives. Okay, so we don't recognize the Lord's influence in our lives. But wait a minute. You're supposed to invite yeah. the uh, the Savior to abide with you. Mm-hmm. So so are you saying that the Savior is abiding with you already and you don't recognize his influence in your life? Or are you saying that the Savior needs to be invited to abide with you or other, otherwise there won't be influence at all? I, I don't know. But yeah. anyway. And there's this pattern throughout this lesson too of emphasizing their experience and then jumping to your experience. Yeah. And it's it's almost like the text and, and once again you see it even the the at the very top underneath the title he has risen. Ponder how these chapters might be used to strengthen the faith of those you teach. Now, that's it may sound harmless, but once again, the using of it. Um what is the faith, right? Mm-hmm. It's about their faith. It's not really about the faith. It's yeah. about their faith as like a virtue within them. And these stories, uh, they look at their experiences, and it's almost like the text is in the way. They just need the event and a, a rough description and then jump to how you might feel or experience God or the gods in your life. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. So it's atheological. A- yep. Which, by the way, um, even along with that, at the very end of the this uh, teaching, it's, it gives some tips for how the teacher can improve the teaching, and it says reserve time for learners to share. And it says when learners share what they are learning, they not only feel the spirit and strengthen their own testimonies, but they also encourage other class members to discover truths for themselves. And this is uh, reserve time for students sharing in every lesson. In some cases, now listen to this: you may find that these discussions are the lesson. <laughs> so again, yeah, the, the, it's all about the, uh, the personal experiences and ideas yeah. and inspirational 
thoughts and things like that. that Story that's time. the goal, right? Story it's, time. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, abstract and obscure. So yep. how do you invite the Savior to abide with you? Well, that's an open-ended question, and it seems as if there's really not a wrong answer, right? Uh, whatever you want to answer would be an appropriate answer there, and that's the whole point of what you're supposed to discuss, apparently, when you're discussing that particular passage in, in uh, Luke, which has has nothing to do with what that is meaning according to what Luke's trying to convey. So no, it's it's not about what Jesus means to me, how Jesus Jesus changed my life, Luke, you know. Yeah. It, it's it's a declaration of public events based on eyewitness testimony, theologically interpreted with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's that's, right. that's what it's about. And they turn it into story time. Yep. That's right. And they turn their accounts into story time. Mm-hmm. It's like their accounts are, but it's not in the same way. We don't get how Luke felt you know, yeah, yeah. We get documents relating what happened and why from a God's eye perspective, which yeah. is why we call it scripture. Yeah, it's just you know, Dia Carson had uh, has said something along the lines of of all true religion or true Christianity. The nature of it is that it is God centered. Yes, it's centered on what God is doing in the world, what God is revealing in the world. And so a true Christian Bible study is going to be a study that is primarily focused on learning about who God is, what he has revealed about himself, and how that comes into play in in our own lives as creatures who are created by him. How do we respond to this God and uh, and what he's revealed to us? So, um, yeah, it's not man-centered of like focusing on your experiences, your thoughts. It's focused on what God has revealed, and that ought to be the center of everything that the church does and every individual Christian does in their own Christian lives. Absolutely. Michael Horton makes this point in his Christless Christianity where he talks about how we all imagine, you know, oh, I, I have a my own life movie, and, you know, I'll make God a character in my life movie. And it's like that. No, Christian. That's not Christian. Whatever that is, yeah. it's not Christianity. Yep. Christianity is dying in being written into God's story. Yep, that's right. And that story, the ark, the redemptive historical site, all of it is in the Bible, mm-hmm. and including the continuing hope of the church for Jesus to return yeah. and um, fulfill the rest of the story. Yep, for sure. Okay, then the next subsection we go on to is John 20, uh, 19 to 29, which is the story of Doubting Thomas. We've actually covered that story as well uh, briefly at some different points in time. But the subtitle here is, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Of course, those are the words that Jesus says to Thomas. And the reason that we had brought this passage of Scripture in before was because what was being encouraged in the LDS curriculum, I can't remember exactly where it was when we had brought this in, but what was being encouraged was the importance of having these spiritual experiences to see for yourself what is true, to know for yourself what is true. And all of it was, of course, to to have a sort of subjective certainty mm-hmm. that the the LDS church is the true church. And yeah. that, spiritual uh, self-reliance. Yeah, they are, that, all that stuff. And so it's just fascinating that now they are quoting this particular passage in the way that we had pointed it out. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And so the Sunday school class is supposed to talk about 
basically how they can strengthen each other's face, faith in uh, things that they cannot see. And so it says, perhaps you could start by asking someone to summarize Thomas' experience. Uh, you could also show the video blesser they have not seen and yet have believed. Class members could list on the board some things God asked them to believe without seeing. Then you could ask them to share experiences that, they, that have strengthened their testimonies of these things and blessings that have come to them as they have exercised faith. And then the last and final section is Jesus having that final conversation with the Apostle Peter in John 21, verses 1 to 17, really 15 to 17 is primarily what it's talking about here. And the subtitle there is, The Savior Invites Us to Feed His Sheep. And that whole subsection is about how all LDS uh, people are supposed to feed one another, essentially. Um, they're, they're, they're all supposed to be participating in this process. And so there's not a distinction made between Christian leaders and others. It's just kind of made this generic, everybody's supposed to be doing this stuff. Which is kind of new. Yeah. And then under the additional resources, uh, it quotes, how can we feed his sheep by Gary, uh, Elder Gary Stevenson. And uh, he goes in to talk about what uh, shepherding looks like. Every man, woman, and child in the kingdom of God is a shepherd. No calling is required and goes on from there. So anyway, that's what we got going on in the curriculum. Let's get to the resurrection. Uh, So yeah, first section, because Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. Skylar, what does that mean from an LDS perspective? What did they teach and believe on the doctrine of the resurrection? Well, so... It, this can be kind of complicated, so I'm trying to simplify. There's a lot of debates about the development of the doctrine, and then there's these kind of loose ends that are debated, um, and I'll point out a couple of debates that LDS have, Mormons have, uh, just so hopefully the Christian listeners will at least be able to see, oh, okay, this is why they debate that, even if you know we're not going to take a particular side. The LDS listeners, maybe you have a particular opinion on this. We'd love to hear why. Um, if you care to let us know. Um, so this is as bare an outline as I can say. LDS scripture pre-1831, there's one general resurrection at the end of the earth, which include both the just and the unjust. In March 1831, that's divided. And this, this comes along with some of the premillennialism as well where all of a sudden you have a first resurrection at the start of the millennium for the righteous and the ignorant as well, those who died without knowledge of the law. They, they twist that Romans 4 verse. We've talked about that a long time ago, actually. But, um, and they get the resurrection of eternal life. The second resurrection is at the end of the earth, at the end of the millennium, for all the wicked, and it's called the resurrection of damnation. Now, in February 1832... The ignorant are now differentiated from the righteous, and they're assigned to the terrestrial kingdom. So, once again, a greater emphasis on knowledge relative to salvation, and you'll have DNC 76, which, for those who don't know, is the revelation where they outline the three kingdoms, stuff that you still hear from missionaries to this day. It's um, pretty standard stuff, uh, where you have the celestial kingdom as the highest kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom as the middle kingdom, and the telestial kingdom as the lowest kingdom. And then for a few, and it's debated who, it's debated even if 
it's Satan, it's debated if it's Judas, for example, um, will be cast to outer darkness, which is kind of just seen as chaos. And in fact, for Brigham Young, that's just what it was. It wasn't actually annihilation. It was you kind of get recycled back into the matter form, you know, and then maybe gods will come along eventually and collect you and get you'll get another chance. But so at, at that point, when you realize, wait, somebody who is totally knowledgeable like Joseph Smith and just somebody, you know, uh, who dies at, you know, one month old can't attain the same salvation if knowledge is part of the basis of your uh, exaltation level. So it's differentiated. And the ignorant are assigned to the terrestrial. And the last resurrection, it's not eternal torment anymore. So in the Doctrine and Covenants, right, eternal is my name. So eternal doesn't mean eternal anymore. Uh, but you will pay for sin, right? Um, but it's not forever, right? Um, and those are assigned to the telestial kingdom. It's still a kingdom of glory, but it's the lowest of the three. And um, in December 1832, the last resurrection includes sons of perdition who are cast into outer darkness. Now, what's key to understand with these two resurrections is that there's four stages. So each has a morning-afternoon bifurcation. So you have um, the morning. If you, sometimes you'll see this even in patriarchal blessings that LDS will get if you if you ever hear one or see one. You know you you know you will. You know, we will see you in the morning of the first resurrection. That means the most righteous, right? Because the, the more righteous you are, right, the closer to the front of the line you are, right? <laughs> that's kind of, think of it that way. And the least righteous are at the back of the line. Well, that's true within each resurrection and between the two. So, um, so yeah, just think two resurrections, four stages. There's a morning and an afternoon to each resurrection. Um, now... Here are two questions I'm not even going to try to answer, but uh, just to put it on the map uh, for the listener. There is an issue because you have resurrection at the beginning of the millennium, and yet the millennium is also seen as this time of continued testing and propagation of the spe- you know, of mm-hmm. mortal bodies. Yeah. And so the question is, how can they do that if they're resurrected into a celestialized body where they could only propagate celestial bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a big debate over whether they're actually resurrected or just translated. And we talked about translation on the, it was Mark 9, I can't remember exactly which lesson, but right, where it's like uh, your body is temporarily changed uh, so that you can handle a certain level of glory mm-hmm. and you don't die. So yeah. they think Moses didn't die. In fact, it's funny, uh, even though the Bible says Moses died, Bruce R. will be like, yeah, that, they didn't know what they were talking about. They were wrong. Moses didn't die. He was translated. Well, that, they're wondering if maybe those people are translated and so they can live throughout the millennium and still do that, or is it an actual resurrection and they move on? Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, in d 132, the famous polygamy uh, revelation, uh, Abraham is already a god doing what Heavenly Father's doing now. So there is a sense that some can just move on more yeah. quickly than others. Yeah. And apparently Abraham is already a god for another planet <clears throat> or set of planets. Um, now, here's, here's this other issue, though. Um, and this one's a little more interesting to me. I'll make this quick because I also want to get to some LDS distinctives that most might not know that are kind of interesting about the resurrection. Um, you, you also have this issue of 
especially in early LDS sources or earlier revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, the resurrection is spoken of as an event, like in unison, like it just you know happens or whatever. But there's also this kind of um, track of thinking alongside it that treats it as an ordinance akin to what they do in the temple. Maybe a more realized or more glory-filled version. But, um, I mean, Brigham Young even talked about the ordinances and keys of the resurrection, like it's a priesthood ordinance. And so under this scheme, right, someone like, let's say, Joseph Smith would be the first to be resurrected for this dispensation or whatever. And then once he's resurrected by somebody holding the authority and the keys, he's given the authority and the keys. And then he'll resurrect certain people, maybe his wives first or whatever. And then and then those with the authority then go out and resurrect everybody else. So it's like that would obviously take time, right? Because you, you have the whole process of ordination. So uh, one LDS scholar actually calls resurrection in the LDS um a doctrinal scheme, a process, not an event, um, which is interesting. Um, and I think that might be a little more true to their temple yeah. expectation. Um, now, uh, <laughs> here's a couple interesting things, I think. One is there's this idea, and Joseph Smith can be quoted either way. Uh, as usual, I'll put citations in the show notes for those who are interested. Uh, and, and literally, I think it's Wilford Woodruff's journal, Brigham Young said he heard Joseph Smith say both. So this was a debate even among early Mormons. There's this idea that at the moment of resurrection, do you rise from the dead and appear just as you did when you died? Mm-hmm. Um, or do are you raised in like your ideal form? Yeah. Um, and... Um, well, yeah and this is a theme too, I'm not trying to distract myself too much, but this is something that makes me very leery of man-made religion. They try to answer questions that we have no answers to. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, they're, in my view, they're winging this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that either. Yeah. But they don't either. Yeah. You know I mean? so, oh, yeah. Like, you don't know that. I don't either. I admit it. You know, mm-hmm. if the Bible doesn't really speak clearly to it, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how we're going to look and whatever, yeah. but... But still, they what what what's kind of interesting is there because of these two views, uh, you'll have people try to harmonize them like a Joseph Fielding Smith. But where it can get kind of interesting is, okay, it, let's say um, an infant died, or let's say a toddler died. Um, are are they resurrected? And are they is that their body that's glorified? <laughs> There's literally a early Mormon quote about even the children reigning in the heavens in a child's body. It's yeah. kind of a weird quote. Um, but then there's this other view that, oh, maybe they'll be resurrected, and then they'll grow up. Mm-hmm. And so parents will be able to raise the kids that have died um, in the millennium or in the resurrection, once again, going back to that original, the first debate I mentioned. Um, there's also, okay, what if someone's handicapped? What if we had Ed Romine, right, in this system? The idea is he would be resurrected as his body is now, and then maybe gradually the bodily imperfections will disappear. Mm-hmm. So here's the second one. This is one that's often not talked about. I'm surprised it's not talked about as much as it probably should be. It wasn't even mentioned in any of the manuals that I saw. But I I wonder if Mormonism is the only religion that believes this. I don't know. But they believe that all plant 
animal life will be resurrected. Hmm. All of it, including the earth, Mm -hmm. including the earth, because this goes back to Joseph Smith trying to fix Genesis or whatever. Part of it goes back to that because he's looking at, and I don't want to get bogged down into this, but he's looking at the Genesis 1 and 2 account is becoming more popularly you know, looked at from a more critical eye. He's trying to harmonize it. The way he harmonizes the two accounts is to say, well, Genesis 1, or his correction of it, rather, is a spiritual creation before a physical creation. I have not emphasized this point enough this year. This is a huge deal for Mormons, for thinking Mormons, the idea that you were spiritually created before you were physically created. Right. So there's the eternal existence of an intelligence, the eternal existence of matter, But, you know, um, we were organized spiritually long before we were organized physically. Mm. And the idea is we can have the greatest happiness with a body-spirit combination. Yes. Because happiness is the goal. But interestingly enough, they think even the earth was created spiritually before it was physically. Mosquitoes, like you name it, anything that's lived on the earth will be resurrected because it was created spiritually yeah. first. It has a spirit. The earth has a spirit. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. The earth has a spirit, trees, everything. Mm. And um, so that that's something that um, is interesting because when you recognize that, even like say the earth, it was created spiritually, then it was created physically. It has a form of progression as well. Yeah, And that makes sense, right? If you think, okay, the earth part of the fall this is going back to some old episodes but just to remember part of the fall was the earth coming to this solar system and part of the glorification of this earth is taking it back to where it came from but with a glorified equivalent of a body hmm. but but just as the earth just the earth yeah so isn't that interesting i've never i haven't encountered anything like that maybe someone knows more about world religions than i do yeah. can correct us but i it this is something that is uniquely Mormon. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad they didn't focus on it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not uh, not much there. So, what what would you say, uh, just in short, the resurrection of Jesus? What does it accomplish for us? Yeah, yeah. Well, they want to say it accomplishes quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, let me just read one example. Um, there's a bunch. I have a collection of statements of the LDS First Presidency, and this is one from 1916. And this is about the resurrection. First presidency. The certainty of the persistence of man's spirit when the body has finished its earthly mission and the progress of the better part in worlds eternal with the fond assurance of an actual resurrection and a reunion of family associations ordered under divine laws and covenants robs death of its terrors and sheds a light upon the darkness of sorrow or doubt. Okay, so what, what does it do? It's honestly, it's hard to answer because what they'll say is it was necessary to ensure as a gift that everyone and of course everything will be resurrected. Now the, the degree of glory in which you're resurrected, celestial body, terrestrial body, telestial body is based on your obedience. You earn that. Yeah. So that's your part. But Jesus ensures everyone's resurrected. But then you zoom out. 
zoom out and realize that this is like worlds before mm -hmm. and Lucifer only does what he saw in other worlds, you know, was done in other worlds and heavenly father has a God and Jesus has, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Abraham's already a God, all this. And you start to see, wait, this is a natural process. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it honestly, it, I, I don't know if there's a better way to put it, but it seems like, the atonement resurrection connection to them relative to us is that some for some cosmic law reason a perfect person has to shed blood and suffer to keep the cycle going mm -hmm. and um this is going to sound offensive to some and then there are going to be some Mormons that own the polytheism and all that, that would actually probably appreciate the parallel. It, the closest thing I could think of to it is that there were sacrificial systems in the ancient world in which the shedding of blood was necessary for humans to survive in the natural cycle of seasons. Yeah. And that, that's not just a, what a straw man that, that something, no, that like that they, there was a balance of nature and it required sacrificial blood to appease the gods behind the seasons, yeah. for example. Yeah. And that, honestly, that kind of reminds me of that a yeah. little bit. There's some unstated cosmic law. Reality is such that Jesus, Jesus's, res, you know, atonement and resurrection ensures the chance to progress for everybody in this cycle of existence. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we were talking about even before the show was how the idea of multiple mortal probations, like what we had yeah. talked about before could come into all of this because of course Jesus, and th this is exactly how they put it in the article that they reference on the resurrection in their own Bible dictionary. It says one of the most fundamental doctrines taught by the 12 was that Jesus was risen from the tomb with his glorified resurrected body to obtain a resurrection with a celestial exalted body is the center point of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus resurrects into his celestial exalted body. How did he get that? Well, you already mm -hmm. mentioned he got it through earning it yep. by the works that he did. Mm -hmm. And ultimately to be consistent through, through being the redeemer, through being that ultimate sacrifice, mm -hmm. Um, he earned his right to a celestial, exalted body. Mm -hmm. And so if Jesus is the model of what a person must do in order to earn exaltation, who can stand? You know, who, yep. who, what LDS person would have any hope that after this life, they're going to be resurrected into a celestial, exalted body if the standard required in order to do that is what Jesus did? Right. Um, unless perhaps they lower the standard below Jesus, but if if Jesus's resurrection is the example of how the all this stuff uh, comes example. into fruition, right. then right. you better live just as good as Jesus lived and yep. do exactly what Jesus did, which means that somehow you got to make yourself the person who dies for yep. everyone in the world to be resurrected. Exactly. So, so you know the the question then in my mind becomes: Can you? Uh, progress in the next life from one level of glory to the next in the body that you have received in the resurrection. If you receive a telestial body, 
and the resurrection, can that celestial body go to a terrestrial body without going through death and resurrection again? Um, can it pass from one to the next? And if Jesus is the example of what it looks like to have a celestial body, then it would, in my mind, require that there be multiple deaths and resurrections in order for a person to eventually gain that exaltation. Am I thinking right there? There, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, they're not going to frame it that way. But remember, they will say, follow his example, follow his example, follow, be, be more like him, be more like him, be more like him. Yeah. And what the difference was with someone like Brigham Young is he... He was just, he took that next step and said what they leave unstated, which is eventually you're going to have to be a savior to yep. be a father God. Yep. And by the way, this connects with Michael God. For those who want to use it just to uh, um, take a second, regardless of your opinion about it, understand it. Mm-hmm. This connects to Michael God because if, if Adam and Eve entered with a celestialized body, <laughs> this earth, already. Then, and Jesus just got his, right? You see how that Jesus is next going to be an Adam and then to be an Adam, and then you, you move up. You move up the chain. You move up the chain. So, yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely uh, part of it. It made more sense back then in the sense that um, it was more open in their teaching of progression through the kingdoms. Right. Now, they do not say that anymore. But what's what's so weird, though, is let's say you get a celestial body, but it's not yet the glory of Jesus's. Mm-hmm. They do still teach you progress within the kingdom. Right. So I guess the goal is like, it, it, just get a celestial body, just get there, keep your covenant, stay in the church, all that stuff. And then maybe once you get there, then you will can will your way, choose your way, exert your power enough, learn enough to eventually be a Christ and then be a father and then be a grandfather. Yep, yep. So let's get on to some credo-Christian doctrine here by making it clear that the fundamental distinction is that in an LDS doctrine of resurrection, your hope is not in Jesus. Uh, Jesus allows for the resurrection uh, in his sacrifice, but your hope in what you're going to experience after your death and resurrection is dependent upon your obedience. Yes. So your hope is not in Jesus and in what he has accomplished. Your hope is in yourself. Um, and I, I don't see any other way that you could understand that. Now, the credo Christian understanding of resurrection is totally counter to that. Yep. Our understanding of resurrection is that in the resurrection, Jesus accomplished all of the elements of redemption, um, that it was by his resurrection that he conquered sin and death, and that it's by his resurrection that through faith we can be united to him and receive all of the victory that he won for us by way of our union with him, um, because uh, as the resurrected Christ, that's how we come into salvation, is through trust in what all he has accomplished. And so what we believe is that Jesus is our representative head. Um, so our life is in Christ. It is hidden in him. Our, all of our spiritual hope, all, all of everything is in Christ. He is our representative head. And what we mean by that is because of union with Christ, everything that he 
experienced, we will experience in a spiritual sense because we are united to him. So let me read just a little bit of G.K. Beale here to help understand and maybe apply some of what we mean here. Uh, he says, the key components of the the storyline of, of redemption are that Christ's death and especially resurrection and ascension place him as the beginning of the eschatological fulfillment of the new creational kingdom. In other, in other words, Jesus is the inbreaking of everything that we are going to receive in him. Therefore, and more specifically, he is the beginning fulfillment of the following Old Testament end time, end time expectations, which are addressed in the chapters listed above. So here's everything that is fulfilled in Jesus, all of the Old Testament end time expectations of what we're going to receive in him. Here are all those things that he has accomplished, and therefore, because of our, our union with him, uh, we receive the benefits of all this as if we had had this ourselves because Christ is our representative head. So first, the resurrection or the resurrected Christ is the last Adam, son of God, and the true Israel. Second, he is the temple. Third, he was true Israel. Fourth, he was justified, declared to be righteous, um, that he was holy and redeemed. Fifth, he was, a key, he was a king priest who had the status of having successfully endured the end-time tribulation. Six, he was a mission-oriented returnee from exile who sends his word throughout the earth, and he was reconciled to God. Seven, Christ comes to be identified with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Eighth, Christ achieves righteousness fulfilling the law. Ninth, Christ is identified with glory. Tenth, Christ is God's image and one separated from the world. Eleventh, the resurrected, regenerated Christ is, the, is a new creation. And then he goes on, he says, Christ became these things at his resurrection, though he began to fulfill them even in his earthly ministry. At his ascension, what he was functionally doing what he was uh, functionally doing his earthly, or what he was functionally during his earthly ministry, sorry, Son of God, last Adam, Messianic King, fills with the Spirit, all that was escalated. There are more probably, there are probably more facets in this, he says, but those are the ones that he focuses on in this particular book, which is union with the resurrected Christ. So here's what he goes on to say. What is true of Christ in his end-time resurrection is true of believers in their union with his resurrection. So what we're saying is all of these things that the Old Testament is anticipating regarding uh, what the end time salvation is going to look like was accomplished by Jesus. And all that was accomplished in his resurrection and accelerated or uh, even uh, in a way completed in him in his ascension when he goes up into glory. And so um, what we said, what we mean when we're focusing on the resurrection as believers is the resurrection is our hope of salvation, but it's not our resurrection, it's Christ's resurrection that is our hope, that all of these things that are true of Christ, that he has received all these things, that he is all these things, that is what gives us hope that one day we are going to receive all those things in him, not because we have earned it or done anything ourselves, but because we've been identified with him. So there's this idea of re representative headship that maybe we could illustrate in the story of David and Goliath, right? Uh, David and Goliath really was a war between the Israelites and the Philistines, but each army chose a representative head, and that representative head fought um, in, in the place of the whole army so that if whichever representative had won the victory, 
the victory was not just one for that one person, but for the whole army. But there's only one person that actually did the fighting, but that one person's victory becomes the victory of all of the Israelites and David's victory over Goliath. That's what we're saying with Jesus, uh, is that Jesus did all of this, and be because we are in him, he becomes our representative head, so that everything he accomplished becomes uh, b- bestowed upon us, um, even now in part, but one day fully. And so you see what we mean when we're, we're saying we have to be Christ-centered, we have to be focused on Jesus, it's all about Jesus, is that literally our entire salvation is dependent upon everything that Jesus has accomplished. It has nothing to do with a single thing that we ourselves accomplished. We are saved by Jesus's uh, accomplishments and not by our own. And so our salvation is guaranteed as we are placed in him. And we begin to experience by way of union with Christ uh, some of the benefits, uh, some of the blessings of what he has accomplished even in the here and now because of the sending of the Spirit, which fills us and enables us to begin walking in righteousness, walking in truth, experiencing some of the um, things that we will experience perfectly in the in the last day, on the last day. But uh, all that is uh, unto the glory of Christ and is only received because of what Christ has done. So I know that's pretty dense theology right there, and there's a lot more that could be said. But um, if nothing else, just know that what we see when we see the resurrection is we see Jesus uh basically bringing to completion everything that was necessary for our salvation. Um, and God raising him up, it was a, a, a sort of stamp of approval that he was uh, qualified as the Savior that the entire Old Testament is anticipating. And therefore, he will deliver his people into final rest in heaven when we die. So for us, our resurrection um, is not something that we are hoping goes well for us, but we don't know if it will. It's something that we are guaranteed will go well for us because everything that Christ has already received is ours in him. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Well, I know that's uh, a lot of a spiel. No, I love it. It was fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I guess maybe this is one angle to take it is, you know, for them, it's like, yeah, so, you know, everyone's saved and then what we do will determine the rest. Or Because they don't just, it's not just synergistic in the sense that, um, you know, some Christians overly emphasize our will or overly emphasize our participation or something like this. No, no, no. They literally, like I just said, you know, oh, resurrection, okay, we're all going to be resurrected, but we earn the body of glory. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of where that verse is, where we are, there's a sense in which we are already seated with him in heavenly places. Yeah. Colossians, because he is, yeah, and uh, Ephesians, one. yes, yeah, and and once again, that's an that that is a Christian doctrine of quote unquote exaltation, right? Jesus's ascension, and just as we see him paying the price of our sin on the cross, our hope in life after death in the resurrection. I'm being, of course, very basic here. We continue the thing. I mean, we our hope of exaltation is in what. He has already done. That's right. So the gospel doesn't just stop and then, okay, I hope to exalt myself based on knowledge. And No, no, no. It's still a gift. That's right. It's still a gift. You have wretched sinners like you and me, right, that our, our hope is still in him, seated in heavenly places, mm-hmm. exalted, right hand of the Father, 
right? Which is the throne. It's not because they built it. You know, but, yeah. anyway, but it, you know, in the heavenly temple, the, the very place that Eden was to be kind of a testing ground for the first Adam, yep. and yet he fell. We see Christ accomplishes the second Adam, and yet bestow the benefits as a gift. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I don't know if that <laughs> helps, but I mean, that's and it's for all time. It's you know, it, I thought it was funny. You know, they emphasize the body of flesh and bones point, and and then they throw in this line like first person to be, Jesus is the first person to be resurrected on this earth, mm-hmm. on this earth. See that? So it's it's not this continuing cycle <laughs> or anything like that. It's it's for all time because the God, the one God who is in and as Jesus Christ created all things, not just some things. And he created, he didn't just organize. You see all the things from this year so far, right? Come together, view of time, view of creation, view of man, view of the purpose of man, view all of it. And you see here, it completely break down in this lesson on all the fronts (laughs) Because at the end of the day, um, it, 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 isn't, it isn't a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the, the difference between someone who gets resurrected in a celestial body and one resurrected in a celestial body is them. Yep. It's not Christ. It's not even their belief in Christ. Yeah. Just think of the last couple of verses of uh, Romans 4, which, of course, Romans 4 is talking about Abraham being justified by faith and not by works, but at the end of that chapter, um, it's talking about uh, justification or works um, or righteousness being counted to us. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's being counted to us as if it were our own, but it's a righteousness that's outside of us. It's Christ's righteousness will be counted to us. And listen to this this is Romans uh, 24 and 25, who it'll be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's just fascinating. So, you know, even from an evangelical Christian perspective, oftentimes creedal Christians can go wrong and connecting yeah. justification exclusively to the death of Christ on the cross and not seeing that it was in his resurrection that that uh, that the uh, justification was really finished um, because God counted Jesus as righteous after he had made atonement for our sins. And uh, it's because of his resurrection and being counted uh, as, as uh, just that all who are in him have hope of justification by way of, of course, being united to him through faith. Yep. Um, so as we trust in him and hope in him and and believe in his resurrection, uh, we know that we have hope that we're going to be justified on the last day, not because we've earned it, but because Christ was justified. Yes. Look at his resurrection. Yes. That's proof that mm-hmm. God approved, yep. that, that he is seated in the heavenly places. And yes. so because I'm in him by faith, I'm going to be seated in the heavenly places on the last day, not as equivalent to him yes. um, in, in substance, but that I will be included into the salvation benefits of, uh, of eternal glory uh, because of all that Christ has accomplished. And that's why, of course, as creatures, we will worship him forever yes. because through his work, we're going to return to the garden. We're going to return to what God created us to be. And so all of the blessings of our salvation, regeneration, justification, 
uh, glorification, all of these realities are guaranteed because Christ has already proven it. I mean, he's proved it in his resurrection. And, uh, and therefore, we know if we are in Christ that we're going to be resurrected to that as well, yes. um, to the praise of his glorious name. And yeah. so for us, the resurrection means everything mm-hmm. um, because it, our salvation is in Christ right. who has been resurrected. Both the event and the interpretation. Yeah. yeah, God Himself has provided the Lamb. He's provided the righteousness that He requires. And like I'm thinking, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, and He accepted the sacrifice. Yep, yep. He accepted. He absorbed the evil that we owed, <laughs> right? To then be a gracious King to forgive the thief on the cross. Yeah, yep. and and take him with Him that day. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is another thing, too, where it's interesting. They don't really, they, they say, okay, Jesus was resurrected, you too will be. And, you know, why are these truths important to us? I actually wish we could hear what they would say. Yeah. I, I, in their system, right, where it's it's a given. Resurrection's a given. I mean, some God's got to progress to father status. So, I mean, it's happened several, I mean, eternal times before, mm-hmm. eternal rounds. That should be, should be said. It's not linear view of time, right? So, mm-hmm. in whatever cycle, how do they influence our relationships? I I wonder what an LDS would say. Their view of resurrection would influence their relationships, uh, or influence our choices. They include this Oaks talk, where he says the resurrection also gives us a powerful incentive to keep the commandments of God during our mortal lives. See, instead of what you said, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's an incentive, which, once again, how does that follow? When we rise from the dead and proceed to our prophesied final judgment, we want to have qualified for the choicest meets, oh, sorry, uh, choicest blessings, sorry, Leighton Flowers listeners will get the joke, choicest blessings promised to resurrected beings. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I... One more quote, too. The one uh, in the same manual. This is so sneaky. Christofferson, I think I sent you this one. Oh, yeah. So, once again, it, it, if I just read this whole quote, see if you catch it. So, um, if you're if you're listening, I don't care what your background is. See if you catch it. This is, this is what we're doing. This is like our job here, right? Is you read it carefully mm-hmm. and just wait. If, if something sounds evangelical or Protestant or whatever, Christian, just wait a minute. Just keep going, right? So this is the the entirety of the quote they include. Consider for a moment, this is one of their apostles, uh, D. Todd Christopherson. Consider for a moment the significance of the resurrection in resolving once and for all the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth and the great philosophical contests and questions of life. If Jesus was in fact literally resurrected, it necessarily follows that he is a divine being. He's a divine being. No mere mortal has the power in himself to come to life again after dying. Sorry, I'm resisting uh, commenting too prematurely. Because he was resurrected, Jesus cannot have only been only a carpenter, a teacher, a rabbi, or a prophet. Prophet, Because he was resurrected, Jesus had to have been a God, even the only begotten Son of the Father. So, um, and skip ahead, therefore there is a resurrection final judgment for all. So, did you catch it? So, once again, he's a divine being, but what do we have the potential to be? 
And notice, he's not the God, he's a God. Which, once again, you may think of the Holland excuse. Just because we believe in three gods doesn't mean we're polytheistic. Well, is the Father a God? Yeah, and apparently the resurrection proves Jesus is a God, so that's two gods. Different God, right? So it, it's, it's just interesting because, especially in light of Acts 17, right? What is Paul's evangelistic message as to the meaning of the resurrection? So remember last time, they look at the cross and they just say, love, 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 love. No judgment, no the cost of sin, the fall, our sin in Adam, no, none of that, right? Well, similarly here, because they don't know how to emphasize love that much, they kind of jump to the Thomas story and then, you know, it, it focus on the experiences, the, uh, their own experiences ultimately. But, <laughs> but what about the judgment here as well, right? Where Paul says... What does he say to the Athenians? Uh, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you read it, Paul says that by raising Jesus from the dead, right, he, he's fixed a day when all will be judged for their idolatry before the one true God. In the whole context, right, Paul the rabbi, right, the student of Gamaliel, who's now converted in the sense of seeing Jesus as not only the Messiah, but the God-man, God having come as the Messiah, yep. um, he's going around seeing all the idols mm-hmm. and seeing this kind of just this God and that God and little statues. and I mean, just as a monotheist, he's just, ugh, you cringe, right? And he even sees, oh, we have one to the unknown God, right? Yeah, no God. Notice he doesn't come and say, oh, you have Zeus. Let me build on that. You've got a good foundation here. Let me. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, he picks one where it's like you see the irrationalism of polytheism coming through in the sense of, well, just in case, let's, you know, the superstition that inevitably comes with polytheism. And he gives this sermon and in which he says, right, God has, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Yeah. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world, not just Israel, the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's also a judgment in the resurrection as interpreted by the Apostle Paul. And that's the thing is, not only do they not give enough service to the fact of the resurrection, right? Um where, you know, some parts of the manual, I mean, it's just like even remember the Easter email, right? What was the subject line of the Easter email this year for the LDS church? Rise above your challenges, right? They immediately jump to this liberal application. But for Paul, it had to be an event or else our faith is for not. He says that in First Corinthians 15. If it didn't happen, we're of all people to be pitied. But it's not just a fact. Yeah, It's also a fact within God's story as revealed through Scripture, mm-hmm. right? So for Paul, he doesn't separate the the connotation from the denotation, right? The denotation, the fact of the resurrection from the connotation of the resurrection, that is the covenant historical meaning of the resurrection, that in raising Christ from the dead, he, God has declared to the world that they will be judged. They must repent they must repent of their idolatry yeah. and worship the one true God in and as the man Jesus, the triune God, mm. who raised Jesus from the dead in his humanity 
and has right he who has ascended and is seated currently on the throne we'll get to the ascension but that that is the meaning of the resurrection yeah and there is absolutely zero percent of that in this manual yep it's good stuff we're out of time so we only got through one subsection this time. We around, did. But, it's okay. Uh, it was the resurrection. So <laughs> it, yes, yes. Good one to stay focused on. Do you want to make any final closing comments just, or just, just wrap it up, call just, it quits? And yeah, on? just one quick one, just one quick one uh, that is relevant specifically to the resurrection, right? Because they talk about um, those who saw Jesus in his resurrected body. Of course, you would agree. Um, in fact, eyewitness testimony is a claim that we affirm, right, mm-hmm. in the scriptures. Once again, you can't have the framework, the theological framework without the fact. You can't have the fact without the framework. But they immediately jump to modern witnesses as if they're at the same level, right, meaning their guys. So it says, another vital way to strengthen your testimony that Jesus Christ lives is through studying testimonies of modern special witnesses, right, the ordained apostles in our day. And... And, of course, then they, I'll just summarize it, but I'll put links to it, of course, where, you know, they give two quotes, you know, Henry B. Eyring, who's really hard to listen to because he's fake crying like half the time, but where he says, uh, you know, as surely as if I had been there, I believe, and whatever. Yeah. And, and, and we want to say, no. Yeah. No, it's not. Yep. <laughs> no, if you saw it with your own eyes, uh, that would be more than your feelings today, yeah. 2,000 years later. Now, we have these events documented by authoritative witnesses or the testimonies they rely on, right, in the case of Luke, for example. Mm -hmm. But no, no, look how they actually, they think they're adding and, like, strengthening. But here's just the classic LDS way of thinking they're strengthening something. Yeah. But they're actually taking away from it. Because if you take their model of an LDS apostle, I mean, it was bad enough back when they said you had to see Jesus to go on a mission. Mm-hmm. And of course, back then the apostles were the missionaries. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. They, if you extrapolate and say, oh, they, you know, Henry B. Eyring is really emotional, you know, so he's really spiritual because he's really emotional. Mm-hmm. And that's why his witness is as good, yeah. right, as, as say, Mary Magdalene's on that morning. Um, or John, or Peter, or James, right? The the list that G- uh, Paul includes. Yep. Um, then did they have to see anything? Yeah. I mean, if you if you start with Henry B. Eyring and go back, then it could have been he he was raised in my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that completely threatens the entirety of biblical theology. If this didn't happen. We're wrong. Yeah. That, it's that simple. And, and our claim is you could have had a security camera, you know, you could have had your ring, you know, <laughs> and you would have you would have seen it. Yep. But we didn't, you know. So we're relying on witnesses the way we have to with historical events right. all the time. And and that's the thing is, it, it, you know, it's the history. You know, Jesus died, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's history. Yep. He died for our sins. That's theology. That's our claim. We hold them organically together. We don't compartmentalize them and kind of shift them the way we see the LDS consistently doing. Yeah. And I think here's just another example of them thinking they're strengthening something, but they're actually undermining not only part of it, the entire thing. Yeah. They're undermining the entirety yep. of the Bible's claims yep. and, the, and our claims to history. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, because our, our faith is a faith that is rooted in historical events that really yes. occurred. Yes. Um, that, you know, Jesus is real. Jesus really died. Jesus really resurrected. And without the history, you don't have the religion that we have. Um, it's all, it, it is all God's acting um, in real space, in real time, in real mm-hmm. history. And uh, that's where we bank our confidence in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, to, to reduce it all to just what you can feel and subjective knowing um, is to take away from the objective claims that we're making about mm-hmm. our faith. And uh, from an ap- apologetic standpoint, that's what we ground our faith in, yep. you know, and, and that's what Paul does. If, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are all, we're of most to be uh, pitied, yep. you know, um, that's the point, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we rely on the eyewitness accounts. We don't need someone who's modern day just saying, well, I felt it really strongly. And so you should believe me, perhaps even over the eyewitness accounts, right? Right. Um, no, we want to be grounded in what the historical truth is not mm-hmm. in uh, someone modern's opinion, right? Right. And the fact that the LDS and many post LDS will lean into someone's dream from five minutes ago mm-hmm. or a course in miracles from 50 years ago yeah. and tre- or book of Mormon from the 1830s, which was written in the 1830s has nothing to do with anything historical other than maybe native American stories. Joseph Smith knew from his time. Yeah. They weren't true of native Americans at the time claimed in the book of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, or Joseph Smith claimed of it, um, shows that they don't have a vow. They don't, it's not just we're having a conversation. Like when we debate uh, other Christians, where we all assume a framework, right? And we're debating details within it. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. We're dealing with something completely different. Yep. Where, you know, Henry Iron can say, yeah, he raised in my heart and I feel strongly it's as good as if, you know, whatever. And we're saying, what, what, you know what? You're not even in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Let me just finish this up reading a little bit from Ephesians. Ephesians uh, chapter 1. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and a love, uh, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks for sticking with us this week. We will be in Acts 1 to 5 next week. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. We'll see you then.